If you can turn to John chapter 18, if you came expecting to hear a Thanksgiving sermon, I will apologize now. Um, you don't get one of those this year. Um, actually, have I given you one any year? I don't think I have. Um, I'll, I'll let you know what's kind of going on from this point. Um, uh, we're gonna, after today, we're going to take a break from John. Uh, we're going to do a series out of Isaiah for Advent. And then um, we'll pick up with John uh, when we get to Lent. Because it'll be, it'll be the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus heading into the resurrection. So uh, we'll talk about the resurrection of Jesus on Resurrection Day. And then uh, it, between uh, January and that point in time, we'll do some psalms. So that's kind of what we're going to be doing uh, coming up soon in uh, the pulpit ministry here at Desert Springs. So, John 18, uh, the first 11 verses. Um, some, some translations have the first 12 verses, but well, I'm going to stick with what I thought in, uh, in 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So, if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Let's pray. Most gracious God, our Heavenly Father, in whom alone dwells all fullness of light and wisdom. Illumine our minds, we beseech you, by your Holy Spirit, in the true understanding of your word. Give us grace that we may receive it with reverence and humility unfeigned. May it lead us to put our whole trust in you alone, and so to serve and honor you, that we may glorify your holy name and edify our neighbors by good example. 
And since it has pleased you to number us among your people, help us to give you love and homage that we owe as children to our Father, as servants to our Lord. And we ask this for the sake of our Master and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. When the doorbell rang, I knew who it was. And I was not excited about who it was. Because they happened to be wearing blue uniforms and had badges and carried guns. And I knew that they were there because of what I had done. I was probably only in fourth or fifth grade at the time. My friends and I had purchased fireworks, which at that point in time in New Hampshire were illegal. And uh, we decided it would be great to go, you know, down the street. There was the elementary school that we attended. And if you go to the, the far side of the school, there was this brook that you crossed and then some woods. And on the far side of the woods, there was a sand and gravel pit. And we thought it would be great to take those bottle rockets and shoot them out over the pit. I'm sure all of you boys, whether young of heart or young of age, are right there with me. <laughs> it was great as we're shooting these ball rockets off. We were having fun until we heard a noise behind us and saw two men in blue that had made their way through the woods and were looking for us. So I'll leave it there for now. I'm sure that many of you in this room have done things for which you could reasonably expect the police to show up on your door if they hadn't have actually caught you in the first case. That there might be, I imagine, some of you who have had a little too much to drink and drove your car anyway. Or perhaps some of you who are a little younger than me and have internet skills that far exceed mine. Perhaps you have hacked websites and therefore transgressed another person's property in that way and broken the law. Whatever it may have been, I'm sure many of you, I see a smile there, someone may have done that, um, have broken the law and are guilty. And the police could come reasonably for you that hopefully they will not be singing the song that we know so well from cops. Bad boys, bad boys. What are you going to do when they come for you? Um, we have the police, so to speak, coming for Jesus, who has done no wrong. And we shall see how he responds to them as we look at this text. But I want this idea to kind of permeate how we think about this text, uh, that Jesus stood in our place for our benefit. And let's start with uh, the first part, which is different from what you have, because I was not happy with this on Thursday. Um, Jesus was betrayed in our place. That's really what's going on through much of this passage. And we really, I think, need to reckon with this fact that Jesus was betrayed in our place. John sets for us a great stage, so to speak, in how he describes how all of this transpires. 
and I'm, I'm reminded of event, some events in my life. But we see that they leave the city, and they, they head for the neighboring countryside, and because it's the eve of Passover, uh, there's a full moon. And we know this because um, all of their months were around the cycle of the moon. So they were 28, the proper number of days that we don't use because we've had emperors that are Caesars that wanted, you know, extra days in their month and all that jazz. So we know it was full moon because Passover was centered in the full moon. So they've got the light of the full moon, which is helpful because they're about to go into the countryside, and they're about to kind of descend into this ravine uh, that is connected with the Wadi Kidron. And so it's similar to the washes that we have here. It's dry unless it rains, okay? And then it's flooded and running rather quickly. Um, So just like here, you don't want to be in the wash when it rains. You don't want to be in the wadi when it rains. But this is about 200 feet down from where the temple is. So they, they, they went down at least 200 feet, most likely, into this ravine at night. So Mark... Do you like do you like hiking at night? <laughs> no, because you don't know what's out there. So thankfully, there was the moon that was there for to the, provide at least a little bit of light. We don't know if they had any lanterns or anything. The text does not tell us. And so they they cross the wadi and they begin to ascend again and they go into what's called the Mount of Olives, which is aptly named because there were lots of olive trees on this uh, mountain. And so they t- find the garden. It's not named here, but we know from the other gospel accounts, the Garden of Gethsemane, which is an, a foreign oil press. It's a place where they press the olives to get the oil out of them. So they go to this place, and the text indicates that Jesus and his disciples met there often, and there's the possibility that there was a rich benefactor who owned the press that allowed them to stay there. Now, they're there on a regular basis, and they're there this particular night because on the night of Passover, everybody had to be within the city limits. But because there's so many people that would come for Passover, what they would do is they extended the city limits out a little bit. And so uh, the Garden of Gethsemane was within the city limits, but Bethany, where their friends... You know, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha lived, that was outside the extended city limits. So they couldn't, couldn't go spend the night for the festival with them. They had, they, so they were going to stay in the garden, most likely. So that sort of sets the stage for us at this point. And it is there that we see that Judas is going to arrive And Judas does not arrive unexpectedly, just like I expected the police to show up at my door and talk to my parents. Um, Jesus expected Judas to show up with the police. But we see twice it is mentioned, and with connection to Judas, it calls him who betrayed him, meaning Jesus. And so John wants us to really understand this. To, to remember that Judas betrays Jesus. Judas knew precisely where to find Jesus because they went there so often. But here we see how Jesus is not hiding 
from them. He's not hiding from Judas's inevitable betrayal. He's not saying, well, you know, Judas knows I'm going to be here, so I'll, why don't we go to the other side of, of the city tonight? Jesus continues to go exactly where he knows he will be found because his hour has come. And we'll see this even more pertinently as we uh, get to the third point here. In this garden, there is no talking serpent, but there is a snake, so to speak, the snake named Judas. And this snake is leading armed soldiers and officers into this garden to destroy the shalom that was there. It sort of does remind one of the temptation of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We see here a band of soldiers. The Greek uses the word cohort, which is interesting because a cohort uh, was a portion of a legion, and uh, the portion of a legion that a cohort was was 600. Now, that doesn't mean that 600 uh, Roman legionnaires showed up there in the garden. It was most likely a portion of that cohort, just like when you say the police showed up, you don't necessarily say how many showed up. You know, there was only one at my doorstep, but the police showed up. Okay? Normally they didn't have that many stationed in Jerusalem, but because of the Passover, an extra cohort or legion would, would be sent to make sure that when all the people are gathered for this religious festival, a riot wouldn't break out, a, uh, an attempt to throw off the Roman chains wouldn't break out. So they were there to quell any kind of mob violence that uh, might happen in the course of this uh, concentrated population of unhappy people. Okay, uh, much how if you know that there's going to be a big protest, you know, at the Washington Monument in D.C., that there'll be extra police there. Same sort of thing is going on here, and some of them are sent to go to meet Jesus in the garden, but not for good reason. In addition to the Roman soldiers, we see that some of the Jewish temple police and officers were there. And so the Jews and the Romans even here are working together with one another. We see that Jesus is being betrayed into the hands of the Roman officials as well as the Jewish officials. So they've gathered together on this one thing. It's sort of that idea of the enemy of my enemy is now my friend. Well, both groups had something about Jesus that they didn't like. And so they gathered together in this endeavor. Okay, And so we should recognize and see that in a sense, uh, representatively, the world is arrayed against Jesus. Jew and Gentile is there to carry him away. Sounds a little over the top, though, for a rabbi and 12 disciples, right? It's not like he's a member of ISIS or some sort of other militant group. He was not advocating the overthrow of Rome and the death of Pontius Pilate. But this does still seem kind of crazy. But they're there just to make sure that there's no riot during his arrest because Jesus was a popular figure among the hoi polloi, the average people. And so, and, but instead of, uh, you know, Jesus 
running away and hiding so that we could trigger the theme song of cops again, we see him saying, whom do you seek? He talks to them. He initiates uh, this process instead of running away. When I was at the gravel pit, I can't remember it was so long ago. That's the benefit of age, I guess. But I'm sure, like any child that age, I considered the prospect of, can I run <laughs> and get away? And of course, uh, being much smaller than the police officers who would be pursuing me and my friends, I assumed it would not be good for me if I ran. <laughs> it would only make matters worse. But Jesus is not just doing the mental math here and kind of going, oh, um, I've got nowhere to go. I'm stuck in this garden. He is moving forward towards the appointed time and hour when he does this. He's not passive. He wasn't a reluctant victim, but he's a, a willing participant in his suffering. And I, I, when I think of this, remember, he, he knows what's going to happen. He embraces what's going to happen, and therefore he reminds me of Paul. In Acts 21, we have the prophets coming, and, the, and they're binding Paul with the belt, and they're saying, essentially, they're interpreting the prophecy. Because God didn't say, don't go, but they're interpreting it as, don't go to Jerusalem. Okay, And the other people with Paul were also like, no, Paul, don't go. There were, urge, there were people, it says in verse 12, urging him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He didn't see this prophecy as saying to him, don't go, but as preparing him for what was going to happen, and he embraced it. And so Jesus, knowing the providence, because he was there when he and the Father decided what would happen, does not see this as, it's my cue to run now, but to endure now. And so he doesn't run. But why is it, I thought as I walked on Friday, why was it that Jesus had to be betrayed? And some of you may have seen my horribly mangled talk-to-notes status on Facebook as my iPhone did unspeakable things to that which I spoke and mutilating it beyond all recognition. Um, I didn't mumble that badly, really. Why was he betrayed? Precisely because in Adam, we betrayed God. Because what you see, uh, what Adam did is he set up a usurper to the true king of the universe. And so Jesus, in trying to bring us back to the true king, in a sense of a, that talonic justice, that eye for an eye, what we deserve by betraying him in Adam is we deserve to be betrayed, and, but Jesus takes that betrayal upon himself, which is almost redundant. He was betrayed in, the, in that garden back then, and now he's betraying be, being betrayed again in another garden. That was for destruction. 
This was for life. He's going to turn the tables on it all so that his betrayal will bring life to those who believe in him. And so as our substitute, Jesus received the betrayal that we deserved and for our benefit. That was a long first point. I'm sorry. I meant for this to be short because we have much to do today. But secondly, much shorter, Jesus stood between his people and destruction. Jesus indeed stands in this very instance between his disciples and the mob, the armed mob that has come to arrest him. Jesus has, as we've just been talking about for the last month or so, he's been praying for their protection because they're going to remain in the world. Jesus is confident in the scriptures that speak about their protection, and yet he acts for their protection. So we can believe in the providence of God, but that does not mean we don't act properly in the providence of God. And so he says to them, if you seek me, if you're really here to get me, then let these guys, these 11 people, go and go freely. You see, Jesus does not want his disciples to be arrested with him. They're not ready to face the kind of trials that they would experience if they were arrested. We see Peter... You know, we will see Peter in a few months, okay? He's not even arrested, and here he is by the fire denying Jesus multiple times. And so imagine how much worse it would be if he, like Jesus, was led away, bound. Okay? And it would be the same for the rest of them. They're not spiritually ready yet. And part of that is because the Holy Spirit has not been poured out upon them in Pentecost. And so Jesus protects them spiritually from this trial that they would experience had they been arrested. Now, there was coming a time for them to suffer for Jesus, just as we saw Paul in Acts 21 suffering uh, for Jesus. It was coming. But that day then was not the day of their suffering. It's sort of like that old wine commercial. I can't remember what it was. Was it Martini and Rossi, maybe? We sell no wine until it's time. Okay? It's not time for them to suffer yet. But one day it will be. And Jesus is protecting them until it's time. And I believe that there's a similar fashion for us. That there may be an appointed time for each of us, perhaps, to suffer for Christ, but today is not necessarily that day, and Jesus protects us until that day may arrive, if indeed it has been appointed for us. And so we see that Jesus is preserving them for their future mission the future mission of bringing the gospel, the word that he gave them to the whole world so that people can believe on Christ and be saved. And so we see that in the course of that mission, all of them would experience arrest. They would be detained. 
they would either be exiled like John himself or martyred like the other ten, and then Paul as well, all for the sake of Jesus. And so while now is not the time of their arrest, we do see the call in Hebrews 13 that so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And so in Hebrews, the author is reminding them that this is not where life is. That just like Abraham, we're looking for the city whose architect and builder is God, and we're not to put our, our hopes in this earthly life. And so we can go outside the city, we can bear the reproach with Jesus, and we can perhaps even suffer with Jesus. Because this is not where it's at. But if we start to think this is where it's at, we're not going to go out the, out the city. We're not going to bear that reproach. We'll not willingly suffer because we're far too comfortable with our lives, with our comforts and our homes and all of that stuff. Back to the text. Jesus said, or John notes, that this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken in his prayer. And so we see again that his words... And his works work together. All right? He's protecting them. Just as he promised that none of them would be lost. None of the ones the Father gave him. And so we see here again that the eleven were given to him by the Father. They're part of the elect. But Judas, the one, was not part of the elect. And so Jesus protects those who are given to him, just as he continues to protect those who are given to him. Let's think about this for a moment. Think about the whole Old Testament, of how he preserved them. Many of his servants, like Daniel, in days of trouble. I mean, being tossed in a lion's den. Who wants to sign up for that one? Not me. I can't imagine what that would be like for Daniel, existentially, to know you're about to be tossed into a den of lions that have been purposely not fed so they can enjoy you. Okay? And you're going to trust God to keep you alive. Or his three friends watching the oven get hotter and hotter, knowing that you're about to be tossed in that oven. And having the faith to say, whether or not he delivers us, we trust him. That only happens by the power of the Holy Spirit and in that particular moment. So, you know, it doesn't matter if I can think I'll be able to stand firm, what I have to rely upon is that the Holy Spirit strengthens me to re re remain firm if I'm ever in that situation. So don't go home and obsess over that thought, folks. <laughs> okay? It's a, it's a grace of the Holy Spirit. 
But the point is that Jesus is the one who is protecting all of these people. And surely he's able to continue protecting his people if that's his desire and plan. And we see how Paul was delivered in many instances from murderous mobs like in Ephesus until it was time. So, Jesus and the Father protect those that the Father gives to Jesus the Son. And so Jesus stands between his people and destruction so they can complete their mission. The third part of this, see, I told you it was going to be shorter. Jesus embraced the Father's plan of salvation. See, here we have these dire circumstances. Jesus knows that they're coming, but he knows, uh, you know, the joy that awaits him, the joy that is held out before him, and he's ready to go through this whole process. The soldiers remind him that they are seeking Jesus of Nazareth, and he declares that he is him. I am. Emphasis on I. He includes the, uh, the pronoun as well as, the ver- because it's unnecessary, the rather unnecessary pronoun along with the verb. Okay, the divine name from Exodus. And then there's just something here that we can't understand. It, it sort of looks like something we see on TV if we watch Benny Hinn uh, when we're passing through on the channels. Um, because they fall back. So what probably happens is, is some of them stumble back and then trip over the ones behind them and like they all like dominoes fall because... Uh, They fall back and fell to the ground. And this is just a little tiny glimpse of the glory of Jesus that all he does is speak a name. He didn't throw a coat at them or any of the the Benny Hinn shenanigans. Okay, He didn't whip them up into a frenzy first. All he does is say, I am. And they fall back, stunned, and to the ground. This is about a glimpse of what we see in Isaiah 11, which Paul refers to in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. But in Isaiah 11 it says, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And here's the key. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, meaning his words. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. And so this is sort of a restrained sense of power that Jesus exhibits here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because his goal is not to kill them in judgment, but to remind them with whom they have to do. And so Jesus is not using his power to stop his arrest. His power is there. It's, it's, it's there for us to see, but it's not being utilized to prevent these men from arresting him. All he had to do is speak the word and they're dead. And he doesn't. Peter, oh, impetuous Peter, he was not content to let this unfold as Jesus was content to let this unfold. But Peter steps forward. He draws his short sword or dagger. The word can mean either of those. And he strikes at the high priest's servant. And in something, I've tried to imagine this with my brain because I'm a a guy, right? 
I've watched far too many violent movies. And so all I can think of is Reservoir Dogs. Okay? His, his ear is removed. Because I have a hard time imagining anything else of, you know, like, why didn't his shoulder fall off too or something? Um, so he, he strikes this man and his ear is removed from his body as he is attempting to protect Jesus. And it's sort of like some of those movies where, uh, like, you know, I watched 47 Ronin last night. 47 against thousands. We will die, but we will do what we've intended to do. You know, it's, it's Peter, let's protect Jesus, even though we'll all die because, you know, we're talking about Roman soldiers here. Impetuous one. But John, we see, is the only one who mentions that it was Peter. And he is also the only one who mentions whose ear that was cut off. But he doesn't mention everything. (laughs) From Luke, we realize that Jesus healed this man's ear. The man that was sent to arrest him, he heals the ear. And so I'm not sure, is this a measure of forgiveness uh, towards that man, or is this a measure of forgiveness towards impetuous Peter? It's sort of a little ambiguous, but there's a sense of he's undoing the wrong that Peter did. Matthew, on the other hand, records that Jesus says that he could call down a legion of angels, which of course reminds me of Elisha. When he and his servant are standing there and his servant is afraid of uh, the chariots of the army of Israel that have come to arrest him, and he says, Lord, open his eyes. And, and so the servant's eyes are opened and he sees these chariots of fire, the army of angels that God has that is going to protect Elisha. Jesus says, I could call down a legion of my own a legion of angels to deliver me. He could do this, but he doesn't. And so we get, in a sense, to the climax of this whole passage. This phrase, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? While Peter was resisting the plan, Jesus was embracing the plan. This cup. Jesus is set to drink the cup of woe, the cup of wrath, the cup of horror, the cup of desolation for His people. He's not just being betrayed and arrested for His people, but He's going to drink the cup of the wrath of God as a substitute for His people. It's the height of the Gospel here in this account of an arrest. We, we had Marty Reed from Jeremiah 25 speaking of this, but you could also go to Ezekiel 23, verses uh, 33 and 34, Zechariah 12, verse 2, and of course culminating in Revelation 14, 9 through 11. 
And the nations, those who reject Jesus, those who refuse to believe in Him and submit to Him, they will drink the cup. But for those who believe, the cup has been drunk for them by Jesus. But that's not all. Jesus, by His obedience, earns the cup of blessing, and that's going to be the cup that He shares with His people, the cup of blessing. And so He removes from our deserving hands the cup of woe and puts in our undeserving hands the cup of blessing. My wife's not here, so she doesn't have the record, so Stephanie will have to ask her later. After I became a Christian and I was uh, attending church, I noticed girlfriend number one's parents one Sunday over in the corner. And they got out before I could talk with them, but I decided I'll write a letter to her. And she was studying to be a teacher, so I assumed that she was a teacher at this point, or ready to be one. And so what I used was an illustration of Everyone takes the test, but everyone gets an F. And the gospel is just that. That's the bad news. Everybody failed. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. And the wages, what we earn from sin is death. That's all of us. We all were there. Some of us might still be there. But Jesus took the test. And instead of getting an F like the rest of us, he got an A. Because he endured every temptation that we have, yet was without sin. And so the glory of the gospel is that Jesus offers us his A to cover up our F. That's the gospel in a sense in a nutshell. Because if we, what happens if you bring home the F? (laughs) You're in trouble, folks. Right, But if you bring home the A, I didn't get money. My cousin got money for grades. I didn't. So I'm not bitter about that, really. (laughs) And this is the Father's plan. To save the people that He gave to His Son. The Father's plan that Jesus would be arrested, that Jesus would go under trial, that Jesus would be executed. And these things are not accidental. They're purposeful. We see this as well in Acts chapter 2, when Peter makes his, has his sermon. Uh, we alluded to this yesterday. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was not a mistake. It was not an accident. It was the will and purpose of God that this happened. And yet you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. We see the mystery of the doctrine of concurrence, the definite plan of God, and yet these people are guilty of committing sin. But right now I want us to focus on the fact that it's the plan of God. Jesus embraced the plan of God as the author and perfecter of our faith, seeing the joy that was before him. He endured the cross and thought little of its shame. And so Jesus was not subject to the whims of other people. 
God is in control, just as true as we are responsible. Let's go back to the beginning. Just like me and outside that sand and gravel pit, what the police officer said to us was, one of the workers said someone was shooting a gun at him. Wow. It's just bottle rockets, man. But nonetheless, most of us have done something that could cause the police to arrest us. My son, get no ideas from this. But all of us have sinned, and all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And so, while the police might not come for you, if we, we could say the ecclesiastical authorities should come for us. But Jesus, as the substitute for sinners, was betrayed, arrested, tried, and executed for our sins. And by faith, we receive the benefits of his perfect record in the sight of God. And so, even if you've already become a Christian, there's still that sense in, where in your life do you need to look to Jesus now? Because you still sin. Where do you need to look to Him? And His perfect record. And His execution in your place. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the fullness of salvation that Jesus has gotten for us. That the only thing that we contribute to this is our sin, our guilt, our condemnation. He is the one who delivers all of the righteousness. He is the one who bore all of the penalty. He is the one who gives us the Holy Spirit. So, Father, I pray for those who... Uh, that exchange hasn't happened yet. That you would call them by the power of the Spirit, that their eyes would be opened, that they would behold the beauty of Jesus and His sacrifice for sinners and entrust themselves to Him. And I pray for the rest of us as we continue to struggle with particular sins that we would still look to Jesus as the one who delivers us. that He's still the one who removes our guilt and our shame. So be doing this amongst your people here this morning, this week, this month, this year. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.